Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley and after a couple of weeks off, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to the podcast. In this episode, how is that counteroffensive in Ukraine actually going? Why is the U.S. ready to supply the government with cluster bombs and why is the rest of the West so nervous? Not to keep harping on climate change, but yes, I'll keep harping on climate change. That's because the South and Southwest are baking more than usual, and the rest of the planet is following suit. There's a new challenger to Twitter in social media, and Elon Musk isn't happy about it. Lots of other people, on the other hand, are. The right-wing Supreme Court says it's okay to be a homophobe. Can approval of other evils be far behind? Off we go, then. I think I may be like a lot of Americans. I've heard of cluster bombs, but didn't know much about how they worked or why their use is frowned upon by so many countries. In the wake of last week's decision by President Biden to send them to Ukraine, I had to get up to speed. The first thing I noticed was U.S. media has been taking great pains not to call them cluster bombs. Munitions? Weapons? Yes. Bombs? Not so much. So, no matter what you call them, here's the definition, courtesy of the New York Times. Quote, they are 155 millimeter artillery shells that can fly about 20 miles before breaking open midair and releasing 72 small grenades that typically explode on impact along the perimeter of an oval-shaped area larger than a football field. End quote. Suffice to say, these weapons can cause huge damage to troops, but also to civilians, which, by the way, would include children. The central question here is about whether or not Ukraine's vaunted counteroffensive is actually working. After all, the chaos caused by the Wagner Group mutiny in Russia should have created an opportunity for some gains by the Ukrainian military. By all objective accounts, however, it has not. Even President Zelensky says the counteroffensive is progressing, as he says, slower than anticipated. Could that be the reason why the U.S. is furnishing the cluster bombs? After all, 100 countries, maybe more, have banned their use. This is expected to be a major bone of contention as President Joe Biden meets with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at 10 Downing Street in London. The Brits aren't really down with the cluster bomb thing. Also at issue, after all the smiles and handshakes for the press is completed, is the NATO membership issue. Biden is very hesitant about pressing NATO membership for Ukraine, while Sunak wants it considered, and considered relatively quickly. Both sides, because they're allies, will serve up a word salad of pleasantries, that actually mean very little. Biden will send the cluster bombs, while Sunak will talk about Britain's expanding presence on the Western world stage that the president's visit represents. Yeah, right. There's also the question of how many of them actually detonate. We're talking about cluster bombs now. The Pentagon estimates only 2.35% of the bombs fail. But their own estimates for bombs with older grenades in them have a failure rate of 14%. That means that those that fail to go off could injure or kill civilians years after they're dropped. Beyond that, some Western media are questioning whether Russia's defenses are stronger 
than predicted. This, of course, goes to the question of why Ukraine's counteroffensive is, if not stalling, sputtering just a wee bit. Other Western articles say Russia has managed to survive the loss of Wagner mercenaries and are now recruiting new groups of soldiers from other places. All this points to one overriding issue. Can the Ukrainians make good on their pledge not to stop fighting until Russia gives back every inch of territory it has seized, including Crimea, which goes back to 2014? There's also a very interesting piece in the Washington Post that advocates NATO membership for Ukraine after this fighting ends. Aside from not knowing when the fighting will end, I would argue that the time to bring Ukraine into NATO was at the beginning of the Russian invasion, not the end of it. I know the reason the West vetoed the idea at the time was because it was thought it might provoke the Russians. I've always believed that the only way to stand up to a bully, and I am a, make no mistake about this, I am a non-violent guy. I advocate for non-violence. But I also believe that the only way to stand up to a bully is to punch the bully in the face, which NATO membership for Ukraine would clearly be a punch in Russia's face. Would it have been, as some predicted at the time, a provocation for a nuclear war? Maybe, maybe not. But we've seen that while the Russians may have stalled the Ukrainian counteroffensive, they're not nearly as adept at playing offense. Of course, now that the war has gone on for over a year, there may be a different set of concerns, but it seems to me the threat of Russian retaliation remains at the root of those concerns. There's also the reality that the vast majority of Ukrainians want to fight until victory is achieved. It could well be that the only way Zelensky can sell less than total victory is by selling them the benefits of NATO membership, which of course involves if one is attacked, all retaliate. That's the basic principle of NATO. And it's why, quite frankly, a lot of people, including Joe Biden, surprisingly, are a little nervous about admitting Ukraine to NATO membership. The other ticking clock is Western public support for funding the war. Zelensky could find that support in the U.S. waning just a bit. We'll see. Coming up, the South and Southwest U.S. are baking. That's not unusual, but folks are starting to get nervous because it's happening around the globe. This is The Intersection. Welcome back to The Intersection. We're in the early to mid part of summer, the hottest time of the year here in the Northern Hemisphere. Yet this summer of 2023 appears to be unique. Let me throw a few numbers at you. And you know I harp on climate change a lot, but please pay attention to these numbers. The planet's hottest days on record were July 3rd through July 5th. That's of 2023. Not last year, not the 1700s, 2023. And that's not just the U.S., that's the world. This is on top of the hottest June ever recorded 
in the South, Mexico, and even in India. Let that sink in for a minute. Now, normally, people just wait out heat waves. That's what we're conditioned to do. All right, well, it'll get cooler eventually. And when the temperature goes down, which it invariably does, they go back to business as usual. The world may not have that luxury for much longer. The media that's been paying attention is calling it a surge. And scientists who track climate change are more than a little alarmed, which should alarm all of us. Want some more numbers? Global temperatures topped out at 62.6 degrees Fahrenheit, the hottest day on Earth has had, the hottest day the Earth has had, that is, since 1940. And sadly, some are predicting it will get even worse next year. Two factors are at work here, greenhouse gas emissions and El Nino. Guess which one mankind can do something about? And yet, I'm not at all sure most people even know the heat is on us and possibly with us for a long, long time to come. And still, there are those who dismiss climate change and they do it for one reason, money. The Chinese, the greatest polluters on earth, just recorded 104 degrees Fahrenheit in Beijing. Will they pay more than lip service to the wolf at their door? Probably not. And when I say lip service to the wolf at their door, I'm talking about doing anything at all about coal-fired plants or other pollutants that they apparently spew in the air at the highest rate of any nation on the planet Earth. And by the way, what ends up happening too often is that other countries, particularly in the West, point to China and say, well, look at what they're doing. Why should we do anything? Because they're not doing anything. Well, if you look at it from a global perspective, that argument doesn't even hold a drop of water. Now, I have to say, politicians, regardless of ideology, are loath to do anything drastic about climate change, greenhouse gas, or much else. That's because they figure as soon as the heat passes, the heat on them to do anything will pass as well. Just last year, the United States Supreme Court ruled the Biden administration didn't have the power to mandate moving away from coal-fired power plants without congressional approval. It's decisions like this that will cripple efforts to fight climate change now and in the future. And in the UK... They've done something similar. They've defunded some of the money, of, uh, some billion, I think 11, 12 billion uh, British pounds to fight climate change. They just reverse course and put the money someplace else. These are the kinds of decisions that our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will pay for, and they will pay through the nose. See, this is not just about hot days or the hottest day on record. It's about the speed with which this climate change is happening. And you cannot avoid it. You can't talk it away. You can't deride it. The fact of the matter is, that's what's happening. Stuff that scientists thought would take generations are now starting to happen in a single generation. That and those are the wages of climate change. But as I said, there is some hope. 
A group of young people in Montana have a court case coming up this week that is the first of its kind in the United States of America. It was filed in 2020, and it alleges the state of Montana deprived them of the right to a healthy environment. Imagine that. The group, 16 and all, are demanding that the state of Montana do its job and protect them from harm from the environment. Why would they say that? Because the state legislature has allegedly enacted two dozen bills that would adversely affect the environment in which these 16 young people live. These young people may be playing a long shot, but they understand something we grown-ups don't seem to understand. And I'm going to put this, I guess, as forcefully as I ever have in one of these podcasts. Nothing, and I emphasize nothing, less than an end to fossil fuels will ultimately save this planet. Nothing. Yet the planet is entirely too dependent on this alleged resource to do what is necessary to save our future. We use fossil fuels literally for everything. We make stuff with it, we burn it, we heat with it. We use fossil fuels for we run our automobiles with it. Fossil fuels are part of the world, not America, not China, not Great Britain, the world's DNA. And maybe we're too self-focused, too self-indulgent to understand what we are doing to future inhabitants of this globe of ours. Up next, the Supreme Court takes dead aim at the LGBTQ community. Don't want to say I told you so, but I did. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, you're here with Mark Riley. It's the voice that you know and the information you can trust. Welcome back to The Intersection. The U.S. Supreme Court has dealt yet another blow to the rights of LGBTQ Americans. In a typical 6-3 decision, the High Court ruled that a Colorado wedding web designer has a First Amendment right to refuse her services to same-sex couples. The rationale is that the woman defines her work as art and therefore is protected by the First Amendment. The dissent, written by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, pointed out that this was the first time in the history of the Supreme Court that a business open to the public has been granted a constitutional right to refuse to serve people from a protected group. Now, you could look back over Dred Scott or you could look back over Plessy versus Ferguson and see that the court has ruled in the past about public accommodations and denying public accommodations to segments of the population. The difference, and Justice Sotomayor makes this clear, is that back then, nobody was protected. Now, the LGBTQ community is protected. And it indeed makes that community second-class citizens. And I told you a few episodes back that the high court was heading in this direction. So uh, let's think about this for a minute. The Supreme Court has taken away a woman's right to choose. 
tools to clean up the environment, and now gay rights. What's next? The rights of blacks, browns, anyone whose lives have been made better by the stumbling progress this country has made in keeping its promise to all its citizens? Will they rule that the children of immigrants born in this country no longer have the rights of citizenship? For this court, that right could end up being low-hanging fruit. See, because they're looking. Clarence Thomas said this very clearly not that long ago. They are looking. This conservative, right-wing dominated Supreme Court, they are looking for rights to deny or snatch away from people. Think about that for a minute. A court that doesn't affirm anything, but it is more than happy to take away rights. Rights that in some cases, like Roe v. Wade, people had had for a half century or more. What in the world is that? See, because if you look at the long arc of history, There was a point at which I mentioned Plessy versus Ferguson and Dred Scott earlier. There was a time when the court took rights away from people or affirmed the taking of rights from people only to turn around some years later, in some cases as long as a century, and give those rights to people. Roe v. Wade was an example. The Civil Rights Act, other sorts of decisions, not just of the high court, but of the Congress as well. And now they're running around trying to snatch them back. They will go after same-sex marriage in short order. They will go after the rights of immigrant children because they don't care who they hurt. They really do not. Now, I would argue that in this Colorado case, the best justice, best justice, would be bankruptcy for this woman's company. There needs to be a clear message sent that no, This discrimination will not be tolerated First Amendment or otherwise. It would also be a great test to see who is really on the side of the LGBTQ community. Supreme Court or not, this behavior is un-American. And finally, Twitter is facing a challenge from the people who brought you Facebook. And Twitter isn't happy about it either. Last week, a competitor to Twitter, launched with a bang, to say the least. Two hours after the launch, two million people had downloaded Mark Zuckerberg's latest creation, Threads. Two hours later, it was up to five million. Twenty-four hours later, the figure stood at 30 million. 30 million downloads in 24 hours. That's the most rapidly downloaded app ever, even bypassing ChatGPT. Very quickly, some of Twitter's most prominent users began posting on threads. In young people's parlance, threads is a thing. Twitter, of course, is not taking this lying down. Elon Musk has threatened legal action, alleging theft of trade secrets by former Twitter employees. By the way, that would be fuel for the fire because he fired a lot of Twitter employees. Zuckerberg denies that is that any Twitter workers are employed by threads. Now, full disclosure, I've never been a big Twitter user myself. I've also never cared who owns it, runs it, or much else about it. I do believe, though, that competition is healthy, even if it comes from a company that itself 
has a multiplicity of issues on their own. Let the two fight it out. I frankly don't care who wins. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.